Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. Uh, we're here with Isabel Newland at Lewisburg Vineyard in Corvallis. It's August 11, 2022. Isabel, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, first question to get things started is why wine? Uh, like how did I get into wine? Sure. Um, I lived in France when I was nine. Um, my parents were running a program for Oberlin College um, and my dad was interested in, well, got really interested in wine. Uh, and I started tasting things. I had a good memory for different wines. Um, and then, so I think that's really where I like got the bug. Um, and then I think later, like in high school, I was really got interested in agriculture. Um, and think of wine as like, because it's a value added product uh, in the world of agriculture, it like holds an interesting place. Um, as far as like influencing other areas too. Um, so tell me about life after uh, after high school. Um, so after high school, I went to college. Um, I went to Swarthmore. It's outside Philadelphia. I was an English major. Um, the summer after my freshman year, I worked in uh, the. I went to Burgundy for the summer and worked uh, in the fields. <laughs> at Domenguia Brew, um, who I've sort of been going back and working with ever since. Um, and so that was the first like time spent in a vineyard. Um, what was that like? You know, in retrospect, I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. Um, I spoke some French, but not like really enough French. And the, the domaine at the time, uh, like, and I think in general, like, communication is not their strong, strong point, um, like a lot of French domains. So uh, I was sort of told what to do, but not really. I was more told, like, what not to do. And so I went through the vineyard, like, hoping I was doing the right thing and trying really hard not to do the things they had told me not to do. So. Um, <laughs> but it was kind of like, it was cool. I liked the work mm -hmm. like I really liked working with the plants so. yeah tell me about tell me more about that what what about the work especially like inspired you or was exciting to you um I think I mean that demand is 17 and a half hectares so that's like not quite 40 acres um and there are like a whole bunch of different sites um and I think also like I was allowed to taste a lot of the wines and like, you know, started to understand how the wines reflected the different sites. And that was very cool to see and to like work in the different ones and like have it, you know, because each every set of vines was slightly different, required slightly different things. So, so what came next? Um, so then I took a semester off my junior fall and went back to France to work the harvest at Guillaume Brew. Um, and then actually, uh, Emmanuel, who's the winemaker there, it was run by three brothers at the time. Now he's the kind of one brother running it. Um, 
and he helped me organize this bicycle trip. Uh, so after harvest was finished, um, I took a bicycle from Burgundy basically to Bordeaux uh, and spent like most nights with a different winery, um, a lot of friends of his. Um, almost all like organic or biodynamic um, and that was really cool because I got to taste a lot of wines in process mm -hmm. um, kind of down the Rhone and then across um, and that was really eye-opening and I think like that was a moment where I was like oh I could do this professionally and also like these people are so cool like <laughs> I want to be like in this profession because like everyone is really different and like weird in a great way so, um, yeah, so then when I graduated from college, I was like, I want to work in the wine industry and I want to live in New York City. Um, and so I ended up working for Savio Suarez, who's a small, well, mid-sized now, uh, importer and distributor of um, European wines. So we had a big French portfolio, big Italian, Portuguese, a little bit of Spanish, um, some German and Austrian. Um, and I worked for him for two years, kind of started out in the office and then moved into being a rep. Mm -hmm. um, and then I got sick of the city um, and wanted to work. I was like, wanted to work in production. Um, I moved upstate uh, and started working on a vegetable, organic vegetable farm um, and kind of planning a move to France. So worked on the farm for two years and then went to, um, worked for Guillaume Brew for basically two years and I got a degree at Bone uh, when I was there um, because they have a program where you can like basically go to school for you know a week every month and then the rest of the time you can work and you get like a student visa it's mm -hmm. that part is nice too mm -hmm. um, so yeah and then I came to Oregon all right, so yeah, lots to, lots to ask about before we get back to Oregon. So tell me about uh, working in New York, obviously, a different different side of wine when you're working in distribution importing. In the yeah. City. Tell me about that. Uh, it was really fun. I was, you know, like 23, and uh, you had, like, an expense account. And, <laughs> <laughs> like, you, your job was basically to, like, go and, you know, like, hobnob with restaurants and, and wine shops. And, uh, yeah, it was fun. It was, I think it was hard for me to kind of see myself as a salesperson um, but now I'm really grateful that I worked in that side of the industry because you know having done a lot of cold calls like it's and like having that relationship with buyers and knowing how that part of the industry works it's uh, kind of like selling my own wine now is much less daunting. Mm -hmm. What did you learn about wine itself while you were working there as you were seeing that, that, that kind of portfolio of wines? Yeah, it was, I think like you, it, the other part that's really fun is that you get to um, like taste a lot of wines. I think if you're working in a restaurant or a shop, which like I worked, I worked in wine shops too, like you taste an array of wines. It's like you taste a lot of wines all the time. Um, and if you work for an importer, you kind of, you taste like more wines than if you're sort of making wine and just tasting your wines constantly. So it's like a broader portfolio, but you still are tasting them often enough um, that you get to know them a little bit more and like see them change. Um, and so that was cool to really like get a sense of how wines change and how moody they are, uh, especially like after traveling or like certain times of the year. 
Um, cause I think that's really a thing. And like, <laughs> it's when you see that as like a pattern instead of as like a fault of like a single wine, um, and like have some context for it, then it's, uh, you know, I think it's nice cause then you can like share that with mm -hmm. consumers. Were you starting at that point to develop kind of your preferences in terms of region, in terms of style? Yeah. I mean, I think I was even in France, but, um, yeah. What did you, what were you finding yourself drawn toward? Um, I really like slightly whiter wines, um, but I like tannin. Um, and so I guess like, you know, which makes sense coming from Burgundy. Um, but I really liked, really started to taste a lot of Northern Italian stuff um, and liked that. Uh, some of the Austrian kind of reds. And then I really love Gruner. Like that was my first uh, real experience with Gruner. Um, and what else? Like I love Albarino. There's some really cool Spanish stuff. Um, he, so Savio imported um, uh, Jean-Claude Chanaday, who was also making the Lapierre wines at that point. Mm -hmm. um, I think maybe still is, I'm not sure. Um, and so we had a lot of like, we, we would get kind of older um, Beaujolais too. That was really fun. Like the 1997, no, the 1998, I remember being like really spectacular. Um, this was in like 2014, 2015. Um, so yeah, it was definitely like eye-opening. Mm -hmm. You talked about when you were in France, you were a lot of organic, a lot of biodynamic farming. Were you noticing that uh, you were still kind of drawn to that farming and when you were drinking wines? Yeah, uh, I think that really comes out in the wines. Um, I mean, I was definitely like indoctrinated by the Guillaume who are, uh, you know, that in Cruzy, the little town where they are, um, that family was really one of the first people to grow grapes organically and like really talk about it. Um, and we're sort of like ostracized because of that. Uh, so like the, the cousin Julian is biodynamic um, and yeah, I think, I think that's, I'm not really interested in uh, growing grapes otherwise. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So tell me about your, re your return to France and then a couple of years you spent there before coming here. Uh, what was your sort of role there and, and what did you, what, 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 what kind of did that add to the story for you? Well, yeah, I'd been back a couple times to visit um, and, but I really wanted to spend like more than a year at the Domaine. Um, and so I was working basically like everyone there works in the, you know, in the vines and then also in the cellar because there's not really enough like, I mean, they make a lot of wine, but it's still not not enough to require someone to be in the cellar full time. Um, so that was fun because like there was definitely both sides of it. Um, and yeah, it was a pretty small crew. Uh, it was me and basically three other people. Mm -hmm. And then occasionally we would hire some, like for the big push during the summer season, hire a little bit more of a crew um, and for harvest obviously, but yeah. So working with all parts of it, were there, um, what were your, what were your favorite parts of the, of the work? Ooh, um, 
I really like, what do I like? Uh, I really like shoot thinning. I love shoot thinning. Um, it's very specific. Yeah, especially when the, uh, before the shoots are like really big, like when they're about this big, it's, oh, it's so much fun. Um, and I really like, I really like working with the barrels um, in Burgundy, like when you fill, so they don't have barrel racks there. Everything is stacked just like barrels on top of each other. Um, and when you fill them, there's a special, um, like basically watering can with a large, well, longer spout uh, called an ouillette. And uh, the cellar's pretty dark. And so you fill it by like listening to the wine fill and you can tell by the sound when it gets to the top. Um, and there's something like really uh, meditative about that that I enjoyed. It's not really something I get to do here, mostly because I don't have enough wine to like, and, but I also don't have my own cellar and you can't really like keep wine not on barrel racks here because there are so many people working in a space. It's, it would be rude. <laughs> Coming from uh, spending that much time in the, in the French, what were your kind of impressions of sort of French wine culture and of, of, the, of the wine making culture there? Um, I think it's fairly rigid, uh, and that's both like great and um, really frustrating. <laughs> so uh, I think there, you know, some like one of the more exciting parts of Burgundy right now is the oat coat, um, both because of climate change and because the like kind of belly of the slope um, where all of the crews are um, is a lot warmer. And so in warm years, like you, the wines can lack some acidity or be like a little alcoholic, whereas the, the haute coat is a little bit um, cooler. But the other part of that is that there are fewer rules as far as the appellation goes for the haute coat, and it's cheaper. So there are some, a lot of like younger people have concentrated up there and like have gotten access to grapes up there and are doing really interesting things. Mm -hmm. um, but I think in order to like change the culture, like change practices down in the areas where there are crews, it takes a lot more because, I mean, because there's a lot of money involved. So <laughs> like, <laughs> as long as that's the case, it, you know, takes a lot to, to change. Mm -hmm. What did you see as the advantage of the rigidity? Um, I think there's a seriousness um, and like a rigor to the winemaking there that uh, comes from a kind of generations and generations of winemakers and like this tradition and and that is lacking sometimes in the US mm -hmm. um, where people are like, oh, like we have these, you know, three grapes from, from you know, like Gruner and Tempranillo and Pinot Noir, and we are going to make a fun rosé out of all three of them. And there's <laughs> like, and it might like taste good at the end of the day, but um, there's not like a clear thinking about like why we're doing that. Um, and so I think the rigidity is nice because like that allows like people to kind of focus on expressing like a sight. Mm -hmm. uh, and so. so when you were there, what were you sort of thinking about for the future? What was your, what were your kind of hope or ambition for the, your future in wine? Um, I mean, 
I wanted to, I wanted to make my own wine. Um, I knew that that would be easier in the U.S. than in France um, as a foreigner, I think. And also just like it's easier to start a business in the U.S. Um, <laughs> I <laughs> actually was really interested and did a certain amount of draft horse work in France. And that was, I, at, the, at the time, I was sort of like interested in doing more of that here. Um, but when I got here, I realized that was maybe not the first step or and also there wasn't like an appetite for that here um, as far as like a contract thing went. Um, whereas in Burgundy, that's like a real hot, hot item right now um, or and around France, I think. Um, but yeah, so I got here and it was sort of like, OK, like I need to find some grapes and then I need to find a seller. Uh, so. <laughs> and why Oregon? Um, I had traveled around the West Coast a little bit and it just seemed like the obvious place because I wanted to work with uh, vinifera. I wasn't that interested in hybrids um, and California is like hot and dry and expensive and Washington just seemed like like it was a lot of big vineyards and kind of spread out mm -hmm. um, and so Oregon seemed like accessible. Did you have any impression of Oregon wine or the Oregon wine industry before coming here? Yeah, I'd come out. I did like a trip by myself a couple weeks in, gosh, the spring of 2017, I think. Um, and like did some tasting and met some people uh, sort of like sussed out the area. And I had like tasted a fair bit of Oregon wine uh, on on the East Coast. So I, I knew a little bit what I was getting into. But What did you think of the wine and the, of the industry? There were very few wines that I loved. I thought the whites were more interesting than the Pinots. Um, and I thought that the Pinots were often like over oaked or that the wood program was a little bit off for the wines. Um, and I would say like I tasted a lot more Oregon wines so I found more that I like, but in general, like I would say I still think that. Um, so tell me about the search for a place in Oregon and, and how you ended up here. I first moved to Salem for various reasons. Um, and I f started out with like kind of working on this larger vineyard down in Yonkala. That was a really beautiful site, but the vineyard was like not in great shape. Um, and the guy who owned it was like, I found him hard to work with. Uh, and so realized that that was not a good idea. It was also like 20 acres and I was the only one there, which I was like, this is, <laughs> this is not going to work. <laughs> um, but I liked that area a lot. Um, and I had met some people down there, including Nathan Wood, who manage a lot of the vineyards down in Elkton. Um, and so I asked him if he had any other like small sites that were a little bit out of his way. Um, and he ended up being like, yes, I have this place called uh, the Applegate House Vineyards that needs some help. Um, and so that was the first site that I sort of like officially took over. 
Um, and then in a similar moment, uh, Andrew Band or Andrew Smith, uh, who is the winemaker at Antiquum, um, I had we were friendly, um, and he lived in Corvallis at the time. He's in Eugene now, um, but because the winery's here, mm -hmm. um, and he knew. So different owners now, but the original guy was named Rich Mason, um, and Rich was looking for someone for here. Um, and so Andrew passed along my number, and that's kind of how I got this place. Um, so basically, like, I mean, I was definitely actively looking, but a lot of word of mouth. Um, I think the thing about the opportunity is there um, for people to farm these smaller sites because uh, it's really not attractive for a management company. Um, and it's also like way too much work for someone who, you know, has a full time job and or doesn't really want to work in the vineyard all the time. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I think th and there are a lot of these sites and a lot of them with people who you know, planted them maybe as a retirement project or something and now are getting a little too old to, um, to manage them. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of, that was my angle. Mm -hmm. um, and now there's, a, I have a, one other site down in Yonkala that's a one acre place that's basically the same idea where it's an older couple that bought the property um, and the vineyard was in really, really bad shape. Uh, and we've kind of brought it back over the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. um, but that's a really interesting site too because it is um there was no trellising system <laughs> the vines are ungrafted uh it's like maybe two-thirds an acre of pinot and a third acre of chardonnay so i'm basically head training them um they're trained pretty tall so they're like little trees uh and i actually think it's like a really fun experiment and i think a good solution for um, kind of warmer summers because um, the grapes are the canopy is open for most of the season and then kind of shades up right when the grapes are pretty mature so like not super susceptible to mildew um, and they don't get like sunburned mm -hmm. um, but so I'm curious about this space here what 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 did what did the vineyard look like when you got here and what were your kind of initial thoughts of what you what you were going to do yeah when i got here it looked pretty rough and, this, and when was this um i got here in 2020 mm -hmm. so pruned it in 2020 that was my first se season um the vineyard looked pretty rough i think it's it's a vineyard that's been i mean it, it had been managed organically i think since rich got here in 2010 or something like that but it had uh like inconsistent management so sometimes it was sprayed or like sometimes i think it was pruned better than others or not shoot thinned or this or that um and so there was a lot of very and still is a lot of variation vine to vine as far as like the vigor goes um and and I think there's a fair bit of variation, like section to section. So this section here is a lot drier and rockier, um, whereas like the section by the house, you know, there's like the septic field there, and the vines are enormous and like have way too much nitrogen. So sure. Um, and then there's like a seasonal creek at the bottom, which is another thing. Uh, but yeah, I think, you know, I'm, 
I think it's a vineyard that has benefited from having one person in it uh, doing the different things because, um, and I'm seeing like a more even growth vine to vine uh, because I'm able to like prune the ones that are not doing as well a little bit shorter uh, and the ones that are doing really well a little bit longer. Um, and those are the kind of things that are hard to instruct a crew to do mm -hmm. consistently. Mm -hmm. um, so. so when you look at a vineyard like that and you're thinking about rehabilitating it, what are the, what are the kind of the initial steps and, and what's the sort of the timeline for you in terms of when you'll get it to where you want to get it? Ooh, um, I don't think I have a lot of control over that. Um, as far as like, I can't, you know, for instance, this vineyard I feel like is in a lot better shape than it was when I got here. Well, all the vineyards are, but like Applegate, that's a younger vineyard that I think was really struggling and I feel like that is still really like a struggling vineyard mm -hmm. um, on some level. And uh, part of it I think is the site and part of it is maybe like, I don't know if it's the plants or like uh, the water or yeah, that's a, a mystery to me. Mm -hmm. So like, I think that will still take another couple of years. Mm -hmm. Whereas Terry's like came right back. Mm -hmm. uh, the other, the one acre site down there, like it, that I've been surprised at how quickly that's kind of like come back to life. So with this vineyard here, what is sort of the arrangement and your role here and, and how did it sort of, how does it lead into you making wine? Um. Well, I think the nice thing about working in the vineyards is that you can spend a lot of time like deciding what kind of wines to make out of what sections. So like, um, like I made, gosh, like five different wines from this vineyard this past year. Um, and so there are certain things like the, I did like a carbonic pomard because the pomard tends is in that really vigorous section and tends to be like um, pretty like not plush but uh, I wanted to pick it earlier and try to do something a little bit lighter and less extractive um, whereas the this section up here uh, there are small berries, um, they're slightly like more delicate juice, but they have like really nice tannin. Um, and so this area here makes like, I think goes into the slightly more serious wine. Um, but for that wine I do, like there's a mixture of all the different clones. There are three clones here. So this is the Vadensville and then there's uh, Pomard in the center. Bow move, and then uh, <laughs> and then there's one one five down at the other end. Um, so, well, I'm curious about the, the so tell me, take us to the sort of the timeline of starting your own wine project and and of, and of figuring out what you wanted to do and how. Well, I think uh, I think of making wine as especially when you're doing the work in the vineyards as sort of like. A transcript of your conversation with the vines throughout the season um, and so I think like 
when I'm in the cellar, I don't have like a, oh, this is what I'm trying to do. Uh, it's more like how to focus that conversation and like how to bring that to the table in the clearest way possible. Um, and so like I have made a couple of like, so I'll use a little bit of sulfur, uh, but not too much and otherwise like don't add anything. Um, so it's native fermentation. Um, I've been playing a little bit with whole cluster and uh, de-stemmed, but that really has to do with the vintage. Mm -hmm. um, so like last year it was kind of, and last year was sort of half and half. This year, I think I may de-stem a little bit more, especially if it's cooler. Mm -hmm. um, but it also has to do with like what vessels are available to me in the winery and like kind of logistical things like that. So I don't have, feel like I have full control over it. Um, but the other thing is like, I'm interested in, especially this site, uh, the red not seeing any wood. So it was fermented and aged in concrete uh, with a little bit of time in steel last year. Um, and I'm hoping I can do that again, although it may just be steel, but or like fermented it in concrete and aged in steel because I don't know if I'll have enough grapes to fill up the tank mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, this year. Yeah. I got, it got hit by the frost pretty hard. Yeah. So. So what, what give us a, an idea of the, the, the idea behind the name of your wine project and uh, what kind of wines you've made so far? Um, so dacha is the Russian word for country house. Um, and I think it, I mean, it has to do with the kind of sites that I am using mm -hmm. um, for fruit, which are all smaller and generally attached to a, a, someone's country house. Um, and I think that like, that's, I think that it's an interesting model. Um, and it's one that could be replicated because there are a lot of these kind of sites in Oregon. Um, and I like it because it's it's based on trust. Like you have to have a good relationship with the person who owns the property. Um, but there's also like, I think it's, I bring more to the table as someone with an expertise in grapes than someone who is say trying to grow vegetables or another annual crop on someone's property um, because that is sort of like go, comes in and out every year and doesn't like bring as much value to the landowner from their perspective kind of thing whereas like if they you know if like it's hard to get a management company and like really expensive like organic grape management is like you know eight thousand dollars an acre right now up in the valley or like more it's crazy um so you know if someone doesn't want to like drop four to eight thousand dollars an acre on vineyard management um or like have to deal with a vineyard that's covered with mildew and not pruned you know two years later then like they need someone like me mm -hmm. um and i think everyone who i'm working with like is really grateful that i'm there and like i'm grateful to, to be here mm -hmm. so uh so far it's been like a really nice relationship tell me about your wines so far and uh what you you mentioned kind of the the idea of a transcript of the of the conversation so what have you created so far and what are you particularly happy with so far um well, so like last year from this vineyard, I had, um, I made a, uh, so I made three reds from this vineyard. Um, so there's one 
that was in that's in the concrete that is from draws from all the different clones um, and then there's one that's just the pomard that was done carbonically um, and then there's I took a little bit of the main wine and um, put it in barrel to see how that turns out um, so it's been kind of an interesting year as far as and then like I did a rosé too from the pinot mostly from the well no the rosé had a little bit of everything in it um, but I think especially the, the carbonic pomard was kind of a hit um, and I think it was a good thing to do with that section um, that and so I might we'll see I might try to do that again this year um, it depends like how much fruit comes in <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, I think doing something I may press that section into rosé too if it's um, there's a little that section has a little bit of like cosmetic mildew um, and so I'm not sure I want to try to do that carbonically if that's the case or put it into like a big red blend but we'll see um, it's been a really interesting season for like learning about mildew um, <laughs> this year I think uh, I feel pretty good about it but and we're almost I think out of the woods as far as the fruit goes um, but it's definitely been like learning. A lot of rain this year. Yeah, yeah, a lot of rain, and also because uh, because of the frost, I have a lot of, and because I decided to keep certain uh, like shoots on the heads that had fruit on them, um, that maybe I would have taken off in a different year. There's like a certain amount of canopy right around the heads, which has made it slightly unwieldy as far as like putting things up in the wires and like also as far as getting kind of like an even amount of spread and airflow so that's been a, a thing this year but um yeah i've also been i would say i've like probably halved my sulfur use since last year and i don't use a lot of sulfur but i'm trying to bring it down and did, you know i think the combination of that and the season has meant that um there's a little bit in, and what I've been, really been noticing is that the places I get mildew are the vines that have like, I think an excessive amount of nitrogen. Um, so it's that little septic field. And then there's also a, a, like a couple vines right below where the duck pond empties, um, where like for whatever, for, you'll be like, why does this vine have mildew? Nothing else in this section has any mildew. And like, I'm seeing mildew on the leaves here. And then you'll look up and you'll be like, oh, this is like getting fed duck water constantly. <laughs> um, so <laughs> things, <laughs> things like that has, has been interesting. Um, and not like freaking out when you see like a little bit on a grape um and what i'm seeing now is like again like it doesn't seem to have really taken hold there's a little bit of like kind of black freckling on some grapes in certain sections um but it doesn't seem to be alive anymore so um yeah seeing it like as a as an arc or like as a thing that has an arc um instead of like as a like crisis mm -hmm. um, has been, I think, really interesting. <laughs> well, I'm curious about that because that's it's it's so so many things are pretty easy to panic about or to, to see as crisis. So tell me about that process for you and sort of coming to terms with the the the, the variances in in the vineyard. 
I think, uh, I think every year I get better about, um, like prioritizing the sections that really need work in a given moment. Uh, and so it's very easy to be like, okay, I, I need to start at the first row and keep going row after row until I get to the last row. And there's a lot of times when that's not actually appropriate because like that section in the middle there is the thing that grows the fastest and yes, is the most mildew prone. So like, I think that's the, like, really you should start there. There are like rows, like basically 11 through 15 and like you should start there and then go back to there and then like keep doing other parts of the vineyard like meanwhile. Um, and so that's been something I've been doing this year. Um, and yeah, and, and like realizing that it is kind of fairly spot specific, at least in this place, like this section up here, is not at all mildew prone. And like I, the white section is also very, very clean and I have like hardly sprayed it with sulfur. Um, so kind of recognizing like where you need to prioritize um, your like time and things like, you know, pulling leaves or shoot thinning or pulling laterals, I think is really takes, takes like getting to know the vineyard, but then it will save you a lot of time. I'm curious about your experience in, in 2020, especially Harvest of 2020. Uh, what was that? What, what were the biggest sort of challenges for you, and what what were the decisions you had to make? Um, 2020. So it was my first year here. The vines were not in great shape. Um, I there was very little fruit because it was bad flowering to begin with. Um, so I got probably like what a ton and a half off this place, two tons, um, and. I decided to pick as soon as it smoked. So um, I had Labor Day, I picked in Yonkala because that's a really early site at Applegate. Um, and then I drove back up here after dropping stuff off at the winery. I was working out of a winery in Eugene at the time. Uh, and like it was, I don't know if you remember that night, but like there were these huge wind gusts. I was driving a box truck um, <laughs> and <laughs> got up here and like the whole the whole sky was yellow and like it was pretty apocalyptic but I was sort of like okay I need to pick this tomorrow and I picked Tuesday Wednesday Thursday um and the Tuesday and Wednesday picks I picked it by myself with a like a little bit of help on two days from the owner here and then a friend of mine um and Tuesday and Wednesday, I went into the red. I made a light red. I tried really hard not to really extract anything. Um, and then the Thursday pick, I pressed as rosé. What was the experience of picking in those conditions like? And, and what was going through your head as you were picking things off the vines? Uh, it was horrible. I picked in a gas mask. I also like rinsed the soot off of the grapes when I did, like took them in. <laughs> um, it was, I don't know, it was just, it was a little surreal, I guess. Um, but, yeah. And I think I would rather, I would I would take frost over smoke any day because you have the whole season to kind of come to terms with it. Whereas the smoke is hard because you're like, I'm making this wine. I don't know if it's gonna, t you know, be smoky or not. Um, 
you mentioned kind of the the immediate sort of decisions you're making in terms of light pressing rosé. How did things turn out, and would you do anything different? I think, uh, good. It's a light. It is definitely a light red. Um, I think the decision to pick early is something I would do again for sure. Um, I think I, the bricks were high enough. I guess I picked it like 20 or 21 kind of thing. Um, they were high enough that it was worth making a red out of um, instead of like pressing the whole thing for rosé or for like sparkling white or something. Um, but I think that it wasn't. It's not smoky. Um, at least yet. Um, I did have like, I mean, talking about like arcs of things, sort of like mildew, like I had a giant Brett Bloom in that red. Um, that was something where like the wine doesn't taste bready, um, but I wonder, and I wonder too, like if that has to do with the smoke, mm -hmm. like if there is a kind of different yeast population because of the smoke, I can only imagine it would like affect it. Um, and so that was also like a learning moment. Um, I dosed it with sulfur a little bit more than I would have otherwise, uh, and racked it onto clean leaves that I got from a friend. Um, and it, you know, like a couple months later, it really cleaned up. Um, it, if anything, like, I think the structure has been shortened because of, because of the, the Brett and because of it not having a lot of structure to begin with, uh, because I picked early. Mm. Um, but that's, you know, that's an interesting wine that I have a complex relationship with, um, <laughs> and was sort of the best of a bad situation. Um, but it's gotten like, people seem to really like it, <laughs> which was shocking to me. But um, yeah, the 2021 was much, much like better in every way. Uh, so. <laughs> but where's the fun in that if it's too easy? Well. <laughs> Well, you know, it was so easy that I made like 11 different wines. <laughs> so I guess that was part of the fun of it. Um, but. So tell me about, you mentioned you have the background and sales experience and these that came in handy now that you have your own wines. So tell me about selling your own wines and, and what the experience has been like so far. It's fun. It's different. It, it seems different from uh, selling other people's wines for sure. Um, they've gotten a really good reception overall, mm -hmm. um, and I think it's fun to have a bunch of different things to bring at different points uh, in the year. So, although I think slightly frustrating because then you run out of stuff quickly, but um, you know that's not a I guess a bad thing. Um, and I'm trying to figure out a little bit like how to balance the wholesale and kind of doing some direct sales um, and trying to build up that uh, because you make a lot more money doing that. But it's the kind of thing where especially I'm using Vino Shipper so you can't you like I can't ship during the summer. I can't ship during the dead of winter um, because uh, you don't want to send wine around the country when the temperatures are extreme. So you can really, you only make money doing that like certain times of the year. Um, whereas the wholesale is nice because it's like a constant cash flow. Um. So I'm curious for your for your uh, recollection of like putting your own wine in someone's hand for the first time. What, what's it like pouring for someone the first time uh, when it's when it's your your name on the label? 
Uh, it's slightly uncomfortable. Um, I think the first vintage was really uncomfortable because it was like the only thing I had to show for myself and it was also like just a really weird year. Um, I, the 2021s have been a little bit better because there are a bunch of them uh, and also because it's like the second vintage and so I'm sort of hoping that like with every vintage it will become like a little bit less uncomfortable because there will be a context of like what I'm doing instead of just like this one uh, one item um, as the only reflection of the project. Uh, so, yeah. You mentioned 11 different wines. Tell us what else you're making outside of what you've already mentioned. Yeah, so there are three reds from here. There's a rosé from here and a white, which is a blend of, so that that half acre going down there is like two rows of Riesling, two rows of Gewurz, two rows of Pinot Blanc, two rows of Pinot Gris, two rows of Pinot Noir. And then there's two rows of Chardonnay in the front. And then the whole, the little like, there's like a little pocket of Chardonnay next to the barn. That's actually fairly productive. Um, so that all goes into a white, um, which it makes about a barrel. <laughs> uh, and that, that vineyard is probably my favorite part. Like that section is probably my favorite part of this vineyard and is like really fascinating. It's right by the forest. Um, it's like different varietals. It was in really, really, really horrible shape when I got there. Like the Pinot was okay. That section, like almost all the shoots were like six to 18 inches tall. Like not happy. Um, so that's been gratifying to see it kind of come back. Mm. Um, and so then there's a Pinot from Terry's Vineyard in Yonkala, a Pinot from Applegate Vineyard. Um, there's a sparkling blend of those two vineyards because there's a little bit of Albarino at Applegate and a little bit of Chardonnay at Terry's. So that's a, like a pet nut. Um, and then I farmed an acre and a half uh, of a vineyard in Elkton um, called Anandor uh, that I got half a ton of Gewürztraminer and half a ton of Riesling from. So those are two different wines. Um, and then, oh, and then I have a half barrel of white that is a blend of the, the like, there's a little extra Anandor Riesling and a little extra of the white blend here um, that actually like is sort of a fun thing, but is really good, really delicious. So, uh, yeah. How do your how do your your pinots from all those different sites? How do they compare? And are you pleased with the sort of differences between them? Yeah, they're all really different, um, especially the. The Yonkala sites, so Terry's is like a um, little bit more delicate uh, and came in at a lighter alcohol, but has this like fairly grippy tannin. Um, and then Applegate Pinot is a little bit more like brooding kind of fruit wise uh, and also has like a, a little bit more tannin or like a different kind of tannin than this vineyard. Um, whereas this vineyard has like a lot more exuberant fruit. Um, and a kind of like almost like Loire Valley like silty kind of thing. Um, I don't know exactly how to it's not limestone stone based but there are some like reds in the Loire where you can tell that they were grown in the, like clay versus sand because there's like a like a 
river bottom thing, but like in a nice way. Uh, and I, I feel like it, this vineyard has a little bit of that and it's the same smell that you get when you're walking around certain sections of it after it's rained. Um, and is like a, yeah. Um, but I like the, the, the uh, like tannin profile or the structure of this vineyard is nice too. It's like kind of gritty. Um, yeah. So t tell me about sort of your, you, you've, you've got the project where you're, you're farming and, and making the wines from places you're farming. What is the next step for you? What are you hoping to see as Dacha uh, evolves and matures? Um, I would like to, I'd like to like grow more things in the vineyards, like besides grapevines. Um, I'd also really like to get a handle on, I mean, I'm not tilling, obviously, um, and I'm interested in, in getting like a handle on the undervines so that there's a mix of like things that we're growing here, but then also maybe seeding some stuff that uh, stops growing at like a slightly better height. Um, but I think also like this vineyard, I don't think the grass competition is a problem. Like, I don't think it's stealing anything from the vines. I think everyone is perfectly like happy growing together. Um, I think that having that much biomass is like sort of perfect mole habitat. Um, and that's something I need to keep an eye on. Um, and that at a certain point, like I'm going to have to bring in something to sort of help like digest it. Um, so I'm hoping to get some sheep out here in the winter. I've been putting sheep down on the Southern sites um, and like working with a local guy who has sheep and is nice enough to like bring them to me and take them away when I ask him to. Um, and so, but I think that in general, like having sort of making relationships with people who are not just growing grapes, like people who are, you know, uh, doing sheep or people who are doing other types of, of crops or seeds or whatever um, is something I'd like to do uh, because I think that, you know, it's a lot of space and like it could be like agriculture is more resilient when there are more different types of things involved and more different types of people involved. So, um, so building a community that's not just like eviticulture uh, specific is something that I am interested in doing. Um, and, and like by the, in the same token, like bringing more different types of people into viticulture and like into the vineyard space, um, both like professionally and like ethnically and racially and like, you know, all of those things. Um, so yeah, I think, oh, go ahead, sorry, sorry. like I, I would like to find some more sites, um, but I think that also requires like involving more people because there's a limit to like what I can do myself um, and trying to find a balance of like, you know, having, having like enough fruit um, and like being able to sort of like grow the project and also doing enough of it myself so that I really know what is going on and have a, a real relationship with all of the sites, so. Do you have any intention on, on your own site, your own cellar, own winery, anything like that down the road? Not at the moment. Uh, both like 
because I'm realistic, uh, and also because I think like part of what part of the project that is most interesting to me is finding a way to make a, a viable business without like owning anything. Mm -hmm. um, because I think that like it's going to become like harder and harder to own land. Um, and so like maybe that's not really the point anymore. Um, or sh once you once you like release that kind of <laughs> that being the goal or like the end of the American dream, it really like opens up a lot of other opportunities. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned sort of bringing more people into the vineyard space. Tell me about your thoughts on that and how you might accomplish something like that. Uh, um, I, I mean, the Oregon wine industry and I think American agriculture in general is like really problematic because so many of the people working in the vineyards or in the fields uh, for lots of crops like don't have citizenship. Uh, and like aren't really paid well um, or treated well. So I think like, I guess like put out a model that doesn't involve ownership, but still can like be, uh, still can like be a, a viable like kind of business, like way of, way of like having a business. Um, and this is something like I'm working through too. Um, but that's sort of like, I think what I'm trying to do, um, so that someone could come to this without a lot of capital, um, and, and do something similar. Um, and then like kind of finding those people and helping them to do this. So in your mind, then uh, a larger number of people doing a project similar to yours, where they're not owning, but they're working, working and then making wine from it? Yeah, I think, and like, you know, saying that, like, I came to this with a lot of, like, not a lot of capital, but a lot of support. Uh, and I realized that. Um, and I think, you know, it's complicated to be like, well, anyone can do this because I don't think, I haven't figured it out to that point yet. Um, but I think it's like not an, it's an interesting like, pa like path to explore. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I think agriculture, it's really hard to make money. Um, and that's a big problem because we really need a lot of more people doing small scale agriculture um, and, and being able to make a living doing it um, because they're the people who are really like caring for the, the, you know, the, the region, like the area and also like producing food. Um, and like, that's important. Um, and so I think like every little part of like trying to come up with new and creative ways to make like agriculture something that's viable mm -hmm. um, as like a life uh, for, different types of people um that's like useful so you mentioned your impressions of oregon wine and the industry uh when you got here and before you were here tell me what the if there, what if any changes you've seen and what the industry kind of looks like to you right now um i think so i will caveat this with by saying that like i got here right when the pandemic hit um, and it's really just starting to open up. So there's a lot I haven't seen and tasted and a lot of people I haven't met 
um, because of that. Um, and that's been kind of a blessing because I've been able to like really focus on my own little like microcosm of vineyard sites. Um, but so I think like I don't have, I, I don't feel like I have a kind of cliff from which to like judge the industry. Um, but I think like I think there are a lot of, there are a lot of, um, there's a lot of movement of crews around the valley. Um, and that means that a lot of places are like pruned by a different person every year and shoot thinned by a different person from the person who pruned it and shoot thinned it last year. And then like, so when each job is done by a, a different person, um, it creates like less coherence in a vineyard. Um, and I think that that comes out in the wine sometimes um, and is something that is worth thinking about. Also because like contract labor is not like, it's just maybe not a great model. Like what if everyone had, you know, and like some people are starting to do this, but like a year round crew, um, I, and like, I don't know what it would take to kind of like restructure mm -hmm. the industry so that that was the norm. But I think it's probably a ways from, from happening at this point. Um, what else? Like people are definitely more interested in kind of organic and in integrating animals. But that's, I think, really interesting. I think sheep uh, in vineyards are like a really obvious you know, thing to do, especially in Oregon, because there's so much um, like feed for them year round, but during, especially during the dormant season, like, um, and I think there are a lot of interesting questions about like how to use animals and like how often and how, you know, how much different sites need um, from them. Uh, and so, you know, it would be cool to see like more people doing that and more, um, you know, more animal people involved in the vineyards. Um, and then I, I'm trying to think like what else? I don't know. I think, you know, a lot of the, the other thing I've noticed is that a lot of the practices um, are driven by these certifications um, and especially for larger places and they're sort of done for a certification and I'm thinking about like like the live stuff some often the biodynamic stuff and often like the regenerative stuff are really like have to do with having a certification that you can use uh, that your marketing office can use um, and have less to do about like a kind of goal you're trying or like something you're trying to achieve in the vineyards um, and I think that's a little bit different from Europe where people are you know have it's more of a vineyard oriented like use of these practices um, and so that's something I've noticed. So what do you see next for Oregon wine? Or, or if you'd like to answer it this way, what would you like to see next for Oregon wine? Less Pinot Noir. Um, I, th I really think, and the, you'll, you've probably heard this a lot from people. I think that um, 
we need to start thinking about what other grapes we should grow here. Um, and like if, you know, grafting is a great option. Um, I just think, I think Oregon whites are really interesting and I wish people would make more of them uh, or like plant more white varieties. Um, and then I think there are like a lot of other cool reds, um, you know, from Northern Italy or like Gamay or Cab Franc or just like things besides Pinot that you could plant here. <laughs> um, so. What about concerns you have for the industry or for the for the region going forward? Um, I mean, climate change is a big one, and like the fires. I think we'll see more fires. I think we'll see more frost. Um, and so, I, which comes back to like, you know, not growing so much pinot. Like, I think diversifying um, the crops, kind of plant varieties, and also like what's happening otherwise in the vineyards, like other plants in the vineyards, your kind of soil health. Um, I think that's going to be really key to continuing to grow grapes here. So we talked about the, the kind of the future for your project. Uh, anything else in the future for yourself that you're looking ahead to? Any other projects you're looking forward to taking on or accomplishments you're looking forward to? Uh, Inside or outside of wine? I don't know. Not, nothing like comes immediately to mind. Um, I think I, I've, I'm trying not to like uh, be goal oriented in that way. Um, so I think it's gra it's nice to see the vineyards continuing to get healthier. Um, and you know, if once they stop doing that, then you have to reconsider like. What am I doing? What do I need to do differently? Um, but just, I also feel like I'm really still pretty new here. So, uh, like just getting a little bit better at and understanding like where I am. All right, that's all the questions that I have for you. Uh, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover that you'd like to cover? Um. I don't, well, no, not like exactly. I think I have, it, if you're interested in seeing parts of the vineyard, I have like more specific things where I can be like, okay, this is, this is what I'm trying to do here. But that's hard to explain from the share. Let's do it. We'll do, we'll, we'll do a tour of the vineyard and we'll, uh, we'll go through some of that next. So for this part of it, thank you so much for your time and, and your oral history answers here. And we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.